everyone, and welcome back to the Dead Letters Podcast. I am your host, VP Morris. I wanted to let everyone know that the voting for the Audioverse Award should either be opening soon or is already open by the time this episode drops. I'm leaving a link in the show notes to their site so you can support the show by voting for it in the Writing of a New Audio Play category. You can also support the show by donating via PayPal, following on social media, leaving a 5-star review on iTunes or Stitcher, or simply recommending the show to people you think would enjoy it. Now for the recap. Paul proposed to Fiona as she was leaving the hospital, and offered to move in with her so she could finish out the last few days of the semester. But Fiona was dealt quite a blow when she discovers that Paul's true identity is actually an undercover cop named Jack. Now, let's get into it. The Dead Letters Podcast, Episode 9, The Swarm. Several minutes had passed since Paul left, and I could barely move. I laid there shivering on my bed. How could this be true? I replayed his words over and over in my mind, hoping that maybe it was a misunderstanding, a joke, or even just a weird fight. Yet deep in my core, I knew every word that Paul, or I guess I should say Jack now, had said to me was true. But I couldn't even ask my family about it. Not only did he say that we would be in danger if I told anyone who Paul really was, I wouldn't be allowed to stay in this house if my parents knew I was now here all alone. My phone vibrated and it zapped me out of my paralysis. I flicked open the lock screen to see a text from Marco saying, Hey, I was walking home and I saw your fiancé get in his car and take off. Is everything okay? A smile slipped across my face. Knowing that Marco was close by comforted me. I explained to him that we got into a fight and broke up. Why the man I knew as Paul had left my house so suddenly. You shouldn't be there alone. Not after what happened. Marco texted back. I'm turning around and coming back, but only if you want. Yes, come over, I replied. As soon as I sent the text, I pulled on an oversized sweatshirt and the closest pair of pajama bottoms I could find. Thankfully, I was fully dressed and downstairs by the time Marco rang my doorbell. I let him in and flung my arms around him. He paused for a moment before hugging me back. I let go, and we both started down the hall towards the kitchen. So, what happened? He asked. You were engaged to this guy 15 minutes ago, and now not? He let out a little uncomfortable laugh. Well, it's really crazy, I started. And he told me not to tell anyone that it happened, or my family and I might end up dead. Wait, what? Marco grabbed my arm, holding me. I just... I just don't know how to explain it. First of all, if he threatened you like that, you need to take this thing off. He let his hand slip to my fourth finger that was still sporting that god-awful ring. You're right. I pulled the thing off my finger and my joints pulsed with relief. I hadn't noticed how tight it was until now. Please tell me what happened, he begged. I won't say anything to anyone. I paused, unsure how to begin. Come on, Fiona. Who am I going to tell? I only have like two friends in this whole damn school, and they're too busy playing Fortnite to care about this. If you or your family is in danger, you should tell someone, he said. Okay, fine, I'll tell you. As long as you swear to keep it to yourself. He nodded. Of course. So, what happened? We were about to... I stopped, suddenly feeling embarrassed, sharing this information with him. About to... He looked at me with pleading eyes. You know. I motioned my hand towards my bedroom. Oh. His face froze. Yeah, well, we were about to, and I reached into his pocket and felt something. I pulled it out, and it was a police badge. He said he'd been lying to me this whole time. His name isn't even really Paul. It's Jack, actually, and he's a detective, and he just wanted to get close to me so he could get info on my family. What's your family have to do with this? asked Marco. 
I don't know. He just said that I should start being suspicious of what my father tells me. He threatened that my family or I or all of us could end up in jail or worse if I told anyone about him. And then he just walked out. I hadn't realized, but tears were welling in my eyes. And the worst part of this is, I continued, not caring how desperately I needed a tissue, is that I know the perfect person to talk to about this. She would stay calm and rational, and she would help me make sense of it all, but, but I can't talk to her now, because, because it's Grace. Marco held me in his arms and guided me to the couch and let me collapse on his chest. I miss her so much, I continued. And I saw her in the hospital and no one will believe me and then Paul or whoever proposed and I was so overwhelmed by what just happened and how he was the one that brought me to the hospital. I felt like I owed him something for saving me. Marco stroked my hair as I continued to blather on. And I'm so mad at him and mad at myself. How could I not have known he was lying to me? How could I have not seen what was happening with Grace? She was my best friend, and I was blind to her pain the whole time. He held me close, handing me tissues from the box that was on the coffee table. You must think that I'm a basket case, or a completely unstable idiot, don't you? I asked him as I calmed down. Not at all. You just had some really horrible things happen to you. I wouldn't expect you to be your cheery self after almost dying, losing your best friend, and having your fiancé lie to you like that, he said. I'm afraid I'm never gonna feel better ever again, I said to him. You will. Just give it time. I guess. I wiped my swollen eyes. Can I tell you something about you that always makes me smile? He asked. I nodded. It's actually the first time I saw you. We were in the dorms. It was probably the first or second week of freshman year. And there was all this noise coming from the girl's side of the hallway. Like screaming and freaking out. I opened my door to see what was going on and I hear a girl's voice. Your voice telling them all to calm down. And then I see you a girl with crazy red curling hair and mismatched eyes, walk out of the girl's bathroom with a spider on a paper plate. I saw you walk down with it downstairs while the other girls on the floor called your name and said something like, oh my God, how can you be doing that? Just kill it. And you said, just because it scares you doesn't mean you have the right to kill it. I heard you open the big sliding door from the common area and let it out onto the grass. You see, I always loved spiders. I used to have a tarantula and I loved her so much. And people would think that I was weird because of it. And just the fact that you took the time to save its life, even though everyone else was disgusted by it, made me feel like you were a really good person. And I always liked that about you. I looked up at him and smiled. You'll recover from this, he told me. You're strong. Before I could think of what to do next, I found myself reaching upwards and pulling his lips to mine. He slowly pulled my face closer to his as I kissed him harder. I let go and sank back into his chest. I took his arms and put them around me so I could hold him closer. You're very sweet, Marco. I wish I had noticed it sooner. I remembered how Charlotte had called me willfully blind in her letters. That woman really knew what she was talking about, whoever she was. He didn't say a word to me. He just stroked my hair until I fell asleep. I awoke a few hours later. It was about midnight. Marco had dozed off with my head in his lap. I used to lay like this with Paul, but he would never stay around, and I'd always wake up feeling cold and alone. Creeping off Marco's lap, I made my way to the bathroom. When I came back, he was starting to stir. He woke up in a panic and looked around the room for me until he saw me standing in the doorway. Oh, thank God, he said. Did you think something would happen to me? I asked him. Yeah, actually. I had this dream, but it doesn't matter what was in the dream, but let's just say I know what to do now, he told me. I looked at him confused. Sorry, I know that doesn't make any sense to you, but basically we need to see Heather and as soon as possible. 
Uh, why? I moaned at the thought of dealing with that uptight woman again. Remember? She said you weren't allowed to come back and get your third letter until you survived the terrifying incident. Well, you have, haven't you? Right. I almost forgot about her entirely, I said, feeling weary from the last few days. Let's go see her, first thing in the morning. The next morning I felt hungover. Not like from drinking, but from crying, as if all the energy had been drained from my body through my tears. In the mirror, as I brushed my teeth, I studied the bags under my eyes and the red, inflamed tear ducts. My skin color looked like ash gray, instead of my usual light cream-colored complexion. I pulled out my foundation, about to apply it to my face, but I stopped and put it away. What was the point? I didn't care what I looked like anymore. As I walked downstairs to see Marco, who took the couch for the night, my eyes flicked past Grace's room. The door was shut, but the sight of it still gave me a pang of grief. I pressed my palm to the cool white wood of the door. I should have known, I whispered. I should have seen it coming. I should have listened to you. I should have listened to Charlotte. My eyes burned, too tired to cry once again. Fiona, are you okay? Marco called. I walked downstairs and hugged him once again. Hey, I know, it's okay. It's all right to miss her, but let's get some food in you. I know it will help. Marco pushed a plate of Pop-Tarts into my hand. The strawberry kind, but with no icing, I asked. Yeah, I picked the icing off myself, you crazy person. He laughed. I don't know why most people like it. It's too sweet. He rolled his eyes, not able to understand my odd food preferences. We need to figure out how to get to Heather's, Marco began. Can we borrow Morgan's car? I doubt it, I said. She hasn't talked to me since it happened, and I don't know how she would react to me reaching out. Uber? He asked. Can't. It's tied to my parents' credit card, and my parents will see all the charges. I don't have a credit card, and I barely have enough money on me to last to the end of the semester, he told me. Okay then, we're taking the bus. What would have been a simple 45-minute car ride turned into an hour-and-a-half trek, including multiple transfers at some dingy bus depot to connect to a different route. But finally, we got off at the stop that was only a few blocks away from Heather's high-end neighborhood. A light dusting of snow had fallen overnight, and the yards and rooftops of these colonial-style mini-mansions glowed bright white in the sunlight. Our footsteps crunched the frozen grass and fresh snow on Heather's yard as we made our way up to the front door. I pushed my finger on the button and the bell chimed. A moment later, a teen girl, clearly Heather's daughter, answered the door. She took one look at me, and her eyes widened, and her mouth hung open. Maybe I should have put on makeup, I thought, believing the girl's reaction was to my sullen face. Mom, it's her! The girl called out and ran from the door. Peering inside, I saw a teen boy sitting on the couch. He glared at me, giving the dirtiest look I've ever seen. The sound of footsteps came closer until Heather appeared at the top of the staircase. Go outside and play, kids, she commanded. Mom, it's cold outside, the boy protested. Do as I say, she said, not taking her eyes off of Marco and me. I watched as the two kids put on their coats and gloves and march out into the backyard. From the windows, I could see the boy standing there as his sister scooped up snow and threw it at him. He didn't move. He just kept staring at me. Come in, said Heather, and come upstairs. We followed her up and went into her room. She pushed open the door to her office and shut it behind us. You don't have to keep them outside. We'll keep our voices down, I said, feeling bad for the exile teens. No, they're fine, Heather dismissed me. 
So, it happened. Yes. How do you know? I asked. Well, for one, I'd hope that you wouldn't be stupid enough to come back here after what I told you. Plus, you look just awful. Sorry to say it, but you do. So, what happened? She said to me. My best friend killed herself by putting sleeping pills in wine, and she gave me some, and I almost died with her, I explained as simply as I could. Ah. She reached up and fiddled with her scarf. She had on a navy one with a gold pattern embroidered into it. I'm sorry to hear that. I gave her a slight nod. I suppose it is time, said Heather, reaching down to her desk and opening a beige folder. All these years, and it's now over. What's over? asked Marco. You see in my dead letters, she began. Dead letters? asked Marco, cutting her off. Why do you call them that? You didn't answer all of our questions last time. And before it's over, or whatever, I think you should. Let me explain, she said between her teeth. She put her hand out and motioned for us to take a seat in the two small chairs that were opposite of her desk. A dead letter is a letter that is sent, but it can't reach its final destination, and it can't make its way back to the senders either. So, it essentially is just kept in the post office in this no-man's land. That's what these are. Heather reached into her desk drawer and pulled out the photo album I tried to steal last time. She flipped to the middle of the book and pulled out an envelope and tossed an open letter with Charlotte's handwriting on it to me. She sent these letters between 1874 and 1875, but they were addressed to people who had not been born yet, who lived at addresses that did not exist yet. Heather swallowed hard. From my research, all I have learned about Charlotte Bouvier was that she was an inmate at an asylum in Sterling City, that's upstate, near Lake George. The nurses and doctors humored her by letting her write down these visions of the future and send them out. And since they were clearly undeliverable, the post office just kept them somewhere in storage vaults for decades with other undeliverable letters. But these letters, our dead letters, were discovered by a curious postman who found out that one of these addresses existed, and he delivered all of those letters to that one woman. So why can't we talk to this postman? Maybe he knows more about Charlotte, I started, but Heather held up a finger. The postman in question found our letters in 1920, she told us. Oh, Marco and I said at the same time. How did they get to you then? Marco asked. Heather took a deep breath and adjusted her scarf once again. You see, my parents, they were always into bargain hunting. They loved yard sales, thrift stores, estate sales, and what have you. Anything where you could get a high price item at a discount. Anyway, it was 1986. I was 16 years old. We lived in California, about an hour and a half north of Hollywood. We went to this estate sale of some big-time jazz singer I had never heard of before, but my parents were dying to go. There were so many beautiful things on sale, and for a really good price, up at this giant mansion in the hills. I remember my father bought my mother her favorite pearl necklace that day. There were these hat boxes, fancy-looking things that were being sold without the buyer being able to look inside first. Thinking that they must have some high-class hats or furs or something like that in them, my parents put a bid in, and they won. Well, when we got home, it turned out they were just full of old family photos, journals, newspaper scraps. Upset that they lost money on a relatively useless purchase, my mother handed them to me and told me to throw all of the mementos away and keep the boxes for storage. At first, as the snide teenager I was, I scoffed at the task and started half-heartedly going through the boxes. I was dumping them out and putting all the boring stuff in a big heap on the floor. But something caught my eye. It was these letters. 
There were names and addresses on a bunch of them that I didn't recognize, but at the bottom, the last two envelopes were addressed to me. It had the correct address for my parents' house and everything. I remember feeling cold and tense as if the atmosphere around me changed as I touched the letters for the first time. It was from some woman in 1875. I didn't understand how that was possible, but I read on. I won't bore you with the details, but she laid down all these rules for me, and as an already rebellious teen who had enough of her parents' rules as it is, this was the last thing I wanted to read. The worst rule of all was I wasn't allowed to go swimming in the ocean, or even come close to the shore for the next two years, and at the time I loved to swim and to surf. My oldest brother Jonathan and I used to surf together almost every weekend we could while he was attending USC. He was an amazing older brother. He really cared about me. He let me be my own person in ways my parents or no one else ever did. We spent our time together more like best friends and siblings. But I'm off topic. A solemn look fell over her face as she adjusted her sweater and pulled at the scarf around her neck once again. Up until this point, she continued, I had obeyed some of Charlotte's rules, but nothing too serious had happened. I stayed late at school one night to study with my friends, like the letters told me not to. I ended up tripping in a dark hallway and twisting my ankle. But I thought if that was the worst that could happen, then screw this mystery woman and her letters and all of her rules. That changed a few weeks later when Jonathan and I met up on a weekend to surf. It was the perfect day for it, warm but not too hot. The wind was picking up the waves, but they weren't too big for me to handle. We tethered our bright yellow and orange surfboards to the roof of the station wagon, a hand-me-down from our parents, and rode out to the beach. A flash of Charlotte's warning crossed my mind as I entered the water, but I promptly ignored it. Jonathan and I paddled out and caught a few waves. We were out there for maybe half an hour, possibly 45 minutes, before we realized that we were a little too far from shore. The wind and waves were picking up, causing Jonathan to fall from his board. The water whisked it away from him. With one arm hooked over my board, I swam towards him, hoping we could swim to shore together. But I was stopped by a horrible pain cutting across my foot. I gazed into the water to find that we were surrounded by jellyfish. Huge, orange jellyfish that were traveling in a swarm. Before I could think of what to do, another one dragged its stinging tentacles across my arm. The pain was so bad, I let go of my board on impulse. Jonathan was being stung too. He started flailing in the water and screaming. I swam a few strokes towards him, only to feel more fiery tentacles burning into my skin. I couldn't make it to him without being paralyzed from the pain. I forced myself to turn back, leaving my brother there. I thought maybe if I could get to shore, someone could come out and save him. So I swam. I used all of my strength and willpower to make it back to my board, all while more and more jellyfish scraped up against me, shooting their poisonous barbs into my flesh. It felt like a million white-hot razor blades were being dragged across every inch of my body. I got to my board and threw my body on top of it, but to my horror, some of their tentacles had gotten loose and were stuck to my skin. I had to rip those disgusting things off my legs, arms, and chest. I paddled my way out of the swarm and was making my way to the shore. A lifeguard noticed me and I screamed, jellyfish, at him. He blew his whistle and called for everyone to get out of the water. I got closer. Finally, the water was shallow enough for me to stand in it, but as soon as I put my feet down, my throat seized up. It felt like I swallowed something that was slowly expanding in my airways. My tongue and cheeks were puffy, and I could barely breathe. Stars and spots clouded my vision, and I collapsed on the sand. A paramedic happened to be driving by the beach when a lifeguard waved him down. 
I awoke a few minutes later by taking a huge breath, but I wasn't breathing from my mouth. No, I was breathing from a tube they had shoved through a hole they had cut in my throat. The cut, the tracheotomy as it's called, allowed me to breathe as they treated me for an allergic reaction to the jellyfish venom. Later at the hospital, I learned they discovered my brother's body up the coast. The jellyfish had stung him so badly he couldn't keep afloat, so he drowned. My failure to heed Charlotte's warning caused the biggest tragedy in my life. I lost my wonderful brother. My parents blamed me for taking their oldest son away. My body, as you know, is covered in scars. Every man who sees them runs away at the sight of them. It's ruined my life and changed me to the core of who I am. This is why you must take everything in those letters as gospel. Heather dabbed at the tears forming in her eyes with the back of her index finger, but she didn't let herself cry. I'm so sorry, Heather. I reached out, trying to touch her hand. She looked down, as if my gesture of compassion was malicious. I'm fine. I've learned to live with it. She reassured me, removing her hand from my grasp. Wait, said Marco. I don't mean any disrespect or anything, but how can you have children if no man will touch you? Sperm donor, she said. I got lucky. They're twins. Two for one. A smile appeared on her face before she wiped it away. My last dead letter told me I would not be safe and my children would not be safe if I didn't hand over the contents that were in those hat boxes. To a few and a weatherly, Charlotte laid out particular instructions for under what circumstances I were to give them to you. I thought it was going to be a simple task until I realized that you wouldn't be born until 1997 and I'd have to wait 21 years after that to give you these letters and be free from this for once and for all. There was a knock on the door. Yes, said Heather. Mom, come quick. Charlotte got hurt outside. Charlotte, I asked. He looked at me and rolled his eyes. My sister? Oh, I said, and we rushed past the boy downstairs. Heather flung open the door to the backyard to see her daughter, Charlotte, building a snowman. Hey, Mom, can I come back inside now? She asked. Yes, said Heather. Are you okay? Jonathan said you were hurt. What? No, I'm fine. She laughed as she walked back inside and took off her coat. Seriously, Mom, you worry way too much. Jonathan probably just said it so he could come inside. Heather's attention shifted to her son, who was now upstairs in the office unattended. She ran up after him. Marco and I followed. We found him in the office, gathering up all the papers, the letters, the photos, everything that had to do with Charlotte and her dead letters into a metal trash can. This has gone on long enough, Mom, said Jonathan, as he held out a lighter. Jonathan, please, you don't understand. That's what you always say, and I'm sick of it, he spat. You keep saying, I don't understand, or that you'll explain later. And like you've been obsessed with this girl your entire life, you keep photos and diary entries from a family that isn't even yours. You obsess over these old letters and you won't even let me read them. You even moved us from California just so you could live close enough to this girl to give her these weird letters. It's not fair, he whined. I'll explain everything to you. Anything you want to know, I promise. Just put the lighter down, Heather begged. He pulled a piece of paper off of Heather's desk. Look at this, Fiona, he began. It's your birth announcement from a paper in Boston, September 27th, 1997. Owen and Susanna Weatherly welcome a baby girl. How creepy is it that my mom has that? Jonathan, it's fine, really, I said to him. I'm sorry you had to move here for me. I didn't mean to cause any problems for you, I said. 
I left my school, my girlfriend, my best friends, everything. Now I'm the weird new kid at school and my life sucks. So I've had enough of this weird, bizarro stalking thing my mom has been up to. I'm done. Jonathan flicked the lighter and a blue flame emerged with a yellow tip. He let the edge of it touch the copy of my birth announcement and it engorged in flames. The Dead Letters Podcast is written and produced by me, VP Morris. If you enjoyed today's episode, please help support the show by leaving a five-star review. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you in the next one.